Talking History on News Talk. Well, good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of the most famous Indigenous American leader of all time, Sitting Bull. And we'd love you to join our discussion. Just send us a text, 53106. Text costs 30 cents. Or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week, we discussed the Japanese surrender in World War Two. talked about Walt Whitman in Washington and found out how the Irish Revolution was crowdfunded and lots more besides in our monthly book show. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on Sitting Bull. Born in 1831 and known as Jumping Badger in his early years, Sitting Bull is the most well-known of any Native American leader. Hugely respected by the Lakota people, he became a spiritual and military leader and defeated General Custer at the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876. In later years, his image was romanticised through his involvement with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Sitting Bull was shot dead by the Indian Affairs Police in 1890 when they attempted to arrest him. In Barack Obama's Book for Children of The I Sing, Sitting Bull is included as one of 13 great Americans. And in tonight's show, we want to assess his life and his legacy. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Gary Clayton Anderson is Professor of History at the University of Oklahoma and is an expert on the American Indian and the American West. And his books include Sitting Bull and the Paradox of Lakota Nationhood and most recently Massacre in Minnesota, the Dakota War of 1862, the most violent ethnic conflict in American history. Bill Yenny is an author and historian and has been described by the Wall Street Journal as writing with a cinematic vividness and his books include the biography Sitting Bull. Ken Woody is the Chief of Interpretation at the Little Bighorn Battlefield, National Monument, Montana and he is an expert at bringing the story of the battle to life. Mark Halverson is the curator of collections at the State Historical Society of North Dakota and has been described as a walking encyclopedia of North Dakota knowledge. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Michael B. Moore, who's an instructor at Sitting Bull College in North Dakota. Well, Bill, I might start with you and I might begin with the fact that when um, President Obama published that book uh, for children, uh, I think he wrote it uh, before his inauguration and then it was published in 2010 uh, during his first term as president. Uh, 13 great Americans and one of them was Sitting Bull. Can you tell us about his significance and his status and also I suppose the fact that he's someone who's also been uh, much romanticised and mythologised? Well, he certainly was a uh, in his lifetime a very charismatic figure. Um, and um, History has really uh, chosen him as um, as an example of a of a great American Indian leader. Uh, you certainly uh, um, many of the things that you you have said. He was uh, uh, very important, very well known, um, and certainly uh, very hard, highly regarded among uh, the Lakota people. And and what about the mythology? The fact that uh, there's so much that kind of like, for example, he was a shaman as well as a military leader. But that element is 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 often forgotten about the visions and so on. It's more the the warrior aspect that that tends to be played up, especially in fictional representations. Well, I think he was probably more of a shaman than he was a military leader. Uh, he was uh, he was not the uh, the man who defeated Custer at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Uh, he was present at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, and Custer was defeated, but he was not the by any means the uh, the military leader of uh, of the uh, the side opposing Custer. Um, he has been uh, um, stereotyped, uh, probably uh, more than uh, more than he he should be, um, but he was certainly um, he was certainly. Uh, uh, I think if you were to pick someone, as Obama did in his book, to uh, represent. Uh, uh, um, American Indians as a whole, uh, that would he would probably be um, an ideal person for that. Although uh, he was Lakota, and uh, American Indians tend to think of themselves uh, 
first and foremost as members of their tribe and not of a of a of a generalized uh, grouping such as uh, uh, what we on the outside uh, think of as American Indians. And Bill, it's fascinating what you say about the battle because it, I suppose my you can can you still make this can you still say that he was the pivotal figure because so much of what i've read suggested that it was his visions and his prophecy that that the great victory would occur that seems to have given such momentum and motivation that i have seen him credited with that victory because of that um, I don't think that his uh, predicting the uh, um, the victory, which he this is based on a on a uh, vision that he had during a ghost dance that took place several days before the battle, in which he saw uh, great numbers of uh, U.S. Army troops uh, falling falling into the uh, into the uh, Lakota Northern Cheyenne camp like grasshoppers. Um, I, th- I think that uh, that vision, well, it was it was very important. I don't think that that uh, um, motivated the um, the the uh, Lakota and Northern Cheyenne victory over the U.S. Army. I don't think it uh, motivated it or uh, precipitated it. It was certainly important, and it certainly uh, important an important part of his. Uh, uh, life and career as a shaman uh he also had the vision after the battle that uh while his his people had won a substantial victory on the battlefield um they were uh, they had had or were ultimately to uh to lose the the great cultural war of which that battle was a was a high point very interesting. Gary, a question first before we talk about Sitting Bull. When I was in college, the term that we always used was Native American. I see now that that's fallen slightly out of favor. And now you see a lot of uh, the term is often American Indian. Sometimes it's indigenous American. Uh, which of the three terms is, is, is correct or acceptable now? I don't think there's any one term there that uh, is is dominant anymore. Um, I've written a dozen books, and I've used the term American Indian, Native American. I've used indigenous. Uh, it's kind of nice to have them as a writer because then you aren't constantly using the same term over and over again. Uh, there are some people, particularly I think younger um, uh, people in, in the business who would prefer um, – indigenous American or Native American. Uh, But when you talk to tribal elders often, which I do because I do a lot of Indian claims work and I talk to tribal councils, uh, they generally laugh at that sort of thing and see it as uh, as kind of ridiculous. Um, The term Sioux, for example, which is often used to describe the Lakota, is actually a Cree word uh, that um, comes from the term Nado Sioux, which... uh, generally is translated as snake in the grass. The Cree and the Sioux didn't get along, of course, uh, and the French continued to use this term Sioux. And so when you go to uh, go to Minnesota and go to the Midiwakanton uh, Casino, which is dominated by Dakota Indians, um, they call themselves the Midiwakanton Sioux tribe. So the, I, I don't know that most Indians really have a real strong opinion on that issue. Some do. Uh, and, and many don't. And uh, when it comes to presses, I mean, I publish with the University of Oklahoma Press, which generally publishes more books on Indians than, uh, than anybody else. Um, and they don't have any problem, of course, with the term Indian, and we use it all the time. Now, there are other terms that they will not use uh, that are somewhat derogatory, and, uh, and those have been, uh, you know, uh, set aside. And uh, uh, unless they come within a quotation uh, from someone in the 19th century, for example, uh, uh, they're not used. So I don't see any any real serious uh, effort being made to uh, uh, demand that one term or the other is used. Um, I am publishing a new book next year with uh, with Michigan, and uh, uh, they prefer Native American. 
um, their editor does, the editor of the series. And we may have an argument about that. We'll see. Okay, so that's a very interesting uh, kind of aside or footnote to, to our wider discussion. And and Gary, on the wider discussion, it, I, I do find the, the subject of Sitting Bull fascinating because it's a remarkable life. And then it also has this incredible symbolic life as well and the way it, the life is romanticized or the way even he becomes the symbol symbol of 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 resistance native american resistance to to the united states and even the way in his lifetime after little bighorn he kind of becomes this notorious celebrity that uh, he's a, a figure of of much curiosity and interest yeah well, you know, Wild Bill, who took him on in 1885 in, in the West shows, um, really liked Indians, even though he killed a few and got a Medal of Honor for killing one, in fact. Um, but um, Or Buffalo Bill, I'm sorry. Buffalo Bill um, liked Indians, and uh, he appreciated Sitting Bull. And so when he put his show on and he did all of his things, they had a stagecoach and Indians chasing the stagecoach and the whole nine yards and 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 they did this thing. The only thing Sitting Bull was asked to do was to ride out in front of the audience at the very end and stare at him for about five minutes and then ride away. And when he went into the arena, the whole audience just went quiet. Six, eight thousand people, you know, watching Sitting Bull. So, yeah, he 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 was a a, a fascinating man who uh, the American public came to uh, see as. Uh, is is interesting and fascinating, and uh, uh, is, is he has a tragic end, and it didn't have to happen. The Indian agent at Standing Ridge was a a real jerk, to be honest, and uh, it just didn't have to end that way. But um, unfortunately, it did. Another thing that's interesting about him, though, is years ago, one of the most uh, important um, series in American history is called the Lab Series, the Library of American Biography, and it was started. Um, by um, a press in 1951, it went to Harper Collins, and then Harper Collins sold it to to Pearson Longman, which of course is a British press, the largest press in the world now. And uh, they came to me in the 1990s, and, and and quite frankly, everything they had done had been on dead white presidents, and they were getting sick and tired of writing biographies of dead white presidents. And you think of anybody in the West who might really be interesting, and I suggested Sitting Bull, and their mouths kind of dropped. And uh, in the end, uh, Bruce Borland, the editor, said, let's try it. Uh, and we put together a proposal, and they adopted it. It became one of their best-selling books, and it has been translated into Chinese, for Pete's sake, um, recently. So uh, it's been out there 25 years now and still being read Um so I think he is a, a the earlier speaker is right. He's a very charismatic, interesting man, and maybe the most significant individual that we can pick out uh, from west of the Mississippi River, because that's what they wanted in that lab series uh, back in the 1990s. They wanted to expand it to people other than dead white presidents, uh, and um, so uh, I put together the biography of. Uh, uh, and uh, it turned out to be a rather interesting book. Um, there is a paradox there. There's a fascinating paradox. Uh, there was no Lakota Nation in 1876, in the spring of 76. There were large numbers of Indians on reservations, um, and on those reservations there were factions. They didn't get along. They fought with each other. One faction ended up uh, killing uh, Spotted Tail, one of the important Brulee chiefs, and uh, there was this kind of infighting. And then suddenly, uh, all of a sudden, there are over 10,000 Indians at the Little Bighorn. And uh, one of the explanations for that is the simple fact that a lot of young people wanted to see what kind of a vision Sitting Bull was going to have. And uh, as uh, our earlier speaker pointed out, it was a fascinating vision. We have an actual copy of the uh, pictograph of that vision here at the University of Oklahoma in our Western History Collection, done by uh, his uh, his nephew. And um, in the end, it shows them the cavalry horses upside down, arrows sticking in the soldiers, falling into camp, and that's pretty much what happened. So um, everybody that went out to join that crowd, uh, in a matter of a few days, created a nation that defeated one of the... Uh, considered at that time one of the best armies in the world, um, at least defeated part of it. So, 
Uh, he's a he's a fascinating guy in regards to his his role as a as a shaman as uh, he danced the, the Sundance. And the reason why he he did not take part in the battle at all, he was actually in a teepee recuperating because on the 16th of June when he went into the Sundance, uh, he actually cut himself 50 times on the arm and bled profusely uh, as a sacrifice, of course, to the Great Spirit. And so uh, he had no energy whatsoever and was really pretty much incapable of fighting um, when he was in his 40s at the time. So he was uh, getting old, too. And in the end, uh, really didn't participate in the battle at all. And it's fascinating, Gary, the way you, you, you talk about the people drawn to him. That does seem to be such a, an integral part of the story, the way it went from having these small numbers around him to suddenly these huge numbers. And, and that is, I suppose, the essence of great charismatic leadership, that people are drawn to, to follow you and are inspired. And do we know what exactly it was about his leadership that did inspire? Was it that it was offering an optimistic vision of the future? Uh, was it something about... And what kind of a leader was he? He doesn't seem to be the type of, you know, l- you know, speeches type of leader, but he seems to be someone who... Or, or perhaps was he? But he seems to be someone who, who drew people to him maybe through the force of his character or something to do with the personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's, you know, the, the thing about um, Indians, even though they're disunited and they're factionalized, is they um, they do talk amongst themselves. And there were an awful lot of Indians who were actually serving as scouts or even enlisted soldiers for the army at the time. And, of course, those people also um, got the news out that uh, the government was up to something, that uh, there were troops that were being assembled down at Fort Laramie and up at uh, Fort Abraham Lincoln and also at Fort Ellis and Shaw in Montana. And there was this three-pronged pincer attack being planned. And those Indians on the Little Bighorn uh, knew that, and uh, they were aware of it. Uh, And um, with Sitting Bull's message, with his uh, vision, uh, they were so large, there were so many of them, that they seemed almost unconcerned uh, that Custer might attack. Um, and the only one who really raced out to do something was Crazy Horse, who brought about seven or 800 men south and struck uh, General Cook's uh, campaign uh, very quickly. I mean, they were in that, they were almost in Cook's camp before he even knew they were there. And the attack was so quick and so fast that it just discombobbled General Cook. And he promptly sent a message off to Sheridan in Chicago and said, we have been attacked. We've got, I think it was upwards of 50 dead and 50 wounded. And he says, we won a great victory and now we're retreating. <laughs> so in the end, he turned tail and went back to Fort Laramie, uh, leaving Custer uh, by himself. But uh, in the end, the uh, you know, uh, it was, Sitting Bull was a, a very, this has not come up yet, a very successful warrior, by the way. Uh, he was a part of a very important family in the uh, Unkpapa uh, tribe and uh, is one of the seven major tribes. And uh, he, uh, as a young man, um, was a blote unka, or a, a, a leader of war parties. And um, I think, as I recall, and I have to go back and look, but he, he, he had 31 feathers on his headdress, which uh, is an indication of counting coup or striking an enemy 31 times so and he was wounded many times he walked with a limp um so he was highly respected as a warrior and and deeply respected i think as a as a shaman as a as a person who could speak to the to the great spirit and the great spirit would speak back to him so um he's fascinating guy he is indeed. Ken Woody, you're the Chief of Interpretation at the Little Bighorn Battlefield uh, National Monument at Montana. Can I ask you about what what is it about the battle that inspires people or interests people so much? And what is it about Sitting Bull's story that also seems to, to inspire people? Because it definitely does seem to resonate uh, now in the 21st century in a very major way. Well, thank you for having me. Can you hear me? We we can indeed. I think there's a short delay, but we can hear you perfectly. Okay, good. Um, yeah, Little Bighorn Battlefield speaks to a lot of people. Um, it uh, more than any other battle in the Great Sioux War or in the Western struggle, um, it speaks to 
a lot of people about um, all the injustices to the Indians. Uh, speaks to the <clears throat> taking of land, the breaking of treaties, um, and also because uh, Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer was killed here, and he was a very famous officer in the Civil War, and the way he died here uh, was was very unusual. You know, a, a very professional soldier who was, uh, did a lot of good things for the North to end the war with the South. Uh, led all his charges as a young general, never was injured, had 11 horses shot out from under him. <clears throat> he represented a lot of things about the United States at the time and, the, you know, where we were going as a nation. And the way he died so abruptly after being a Civil War hero, um, a lot of those things speak to a lot of people. Um the combination of who was in the battle. You know, Sitting Bull was looked upon as the overall leader. Crazy Horse was, was there here. Um, Custer, the great general of the Civil War, was killed abruptly. And so it's a, it's a fascinating uh, historic topic uh, for a lot of people. And do you get huge numbers, or certainly in pre-COVID times, is it is it somewhere that uh, uh, people come to uh, school outings, family outings, and other interested uh, 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 visitors? Yeah, you know, over the years we've had a high of four hundred fifty thousand visitors a year. Uh, we're down to about two hundred fifty thousand at the moment. Of course, not counting COVID, but. Um, <clears throat> It's been a roller coaster ride of how many people we've had over the years. Uh, like I said, a high of four hundred fifty thousand. Sometime in the early two thousands is when that happened, and it's it's been steadily going down over time. Uh, I think that's because of the, the the technology interest now, and people getting away from history and technologies. The more interesting thing now in the world. Um, but yeah, we've had a, we've had we still have interest. We still have people. Uh, they still arrive. We're we're along two uh, along two interstates, uh, an interstate I ninety and and State Highway two twelve. So people are on their way to Glacier, Yellowstone Park, and the Black Hills. And so uh, when they see Little Bighorn, it's a, a great interest. So they stop. So that's part of it as well. And Bill, it's interesting in your own work. You look at. At, at the real, I suppose, sitting ball during the battle and, and trying to, to put it in the context of his message of self-reliance rather than violence and the fact that he was concerned with looking after the defenseless Lakota during, during this encounter and looking after the children and that he had you know, much wider concerns than, again, the, 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 the popular image or the mythology. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a stereotype about uh, Sitting Bull that, for instance, that he led the uh, resistance to uh, Custer in that battle, which is completely untrue. Um, that's one one stereotype. Another uh, stereotype is that his uh, that his career as a warrior uh, found him fighting the uh, fighting the U.S. Army throughout his career. However, if you look at uh, at the um, the various variants of his pictorial autobiography, which are a series of drawings that he did of events in his life, you'll find far more of those uh, um, with him fighting the Crow, uh, a tribe um, indigenous to uh, to southeastern Montana. You'll find far more uh, of scenes of of him battling them than you do him battling the U.S. Army. Uh, so that and that also speaks to this this stereotypic myth that all the American Indians were sort of a a united people, united in their in their resistance to outsiders. Yet when you look at the nuances of history, for instance, the uh, when the, um, the the Iroquois were were uh, in in the in the early battles in the Northeast, you had had some tribes 
allied with the French, others allied with the British, others allied with the Americans after the French, and so there, there was there's a lot of, of nuances there, and uh, to uh, look at uh, at him as an as, as sort of a, an icon of opposition to uh, of all Indian opposition to. Um, the U.S. Army and to uh, um, the sort of United States civilization. I think that's inaccurate. And uh, as I tried to point out in the book, um, he spent a lot of time during that the day of the battle uh, worried about where the kids were and, and making sure they were safe, as opposed to being up on the hill fighting fighting the uh, Fighting the U.S. Army, fighting uh, Custer. I think if you're looking for a, for a great military um, hero in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, it would be Crazy Horse, not Sitting Bull. And it's fascinating that contemporary source you've mentioned there, the hieroglyphic autobiography. Do we know when that was when that was done, or was it something that that he that he did? It was, done main, it was done mainly after he uh, after he surrendered to the to the U.S. Army in uh, in 1881. There were actually several versions of it that he did. Um, and um, they were done in uh, in crayons on uh, on note paper. Very interesting, M- Mark. Uh, the U.S. Army. Very good, Mark. Can I talk to you about uh, some of the the records that you have? Uh, uh, you know, going going to this, going to looking at North Dakota, the State Historical Society. Uh, how interested are the people in North Dakota? Uh, how interested are they in the story of of Sitting Bull? And what kind of records and materials do you have? Here in North Dakota, Sitting Bull and Custer. Um, and then Teddy Roosevelt, for God's sake, are, and are the three people that um, are mentioned and are asked about by the average visitor. What we have are objects. Um, we're smack dab in the middle of where some of the events occurred. Um, where Sitting Bull, the locale where Sitting Bull grew up, um, his first opposition to American um, military presence. Um, beginning with the creation of Fort Rice in 1863 in the wake of the Minnesota Uprising, or the Great Dakota War, I think as Gary Anderson would refer to it. Um, but uh, Because they wanted to secure their hunting grounds. Um, the, the one thing I think we're all sort of dancing around that we don't want to talk about is that um, we have to realize that the pressure of the press the popular press, Harper's, Frank Leslie's, Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper, uh, the London Illustrated Newspaper, uh, German journals and newspapers, all loved Sitting Bull. He made great copy. He made absolutely great copy. I mean, um, and he was very aware of this, as, as uh, Dr. Christian Feast has pointed out in, in his uh, last two ex- uh, exhibits on Sitting Bull in Darmstadt in 99 and in Wien, in Vienna, in 2009. Um, there's a great quote, Sitting Bull. The white man made me fight for my hunting grounds. The white man made me kill him or he would kill my friends, my women, and my children. St. Paul, Pioneer Press, August 4th, 1881. Sitting Bull was articulate. He was a family man. He was a hunter. He was a warrior. And as Feast has pointed out, he made good use of the new media, telegraphs, the press. That ensured his survival and the survival of his people. But we have objects. We have objects, we have locations, and we have, well, we don't have, there's no one left from uh, uh, Custer's family. And um, Noel, let's see, Keel, of course, he was Irish. Um, his, his horse survived and was stuffed and mounted in Kansas. And, uh, and his op- he shipped a bunch of stuff to his family in Ireland, and that ended up being purchased by the Gene Autry Museum out in Los Angeles here a number of years ago. But um, 
But the Dakota people, the, the Lakota, are still here. We still talk to them. Uh, we're working with um, Ronnie's Horses Thunder. Um, he's advising us on the exhibit. Um, and, and it's a very small exhibit. It's only 1,000 square feet that are uh, at the old Fort Buford State Historic Site, the Missouri Yellowstone Confluence Interpretive Center in near Williston, North Dakota. Smack dab in the middle of the oil patch um, near the Canadian border, Montana-Canadian border. And um, he's the, he's, for lack of a better term, he's one of the keepers of the family knowledge, the oral tradition, which he's very um, keen on and very um, up-to-date on the most recent literature, whether it's Utley's work, The Lance and the Shield, Gary Anderson's work on Sitting Bull in the Lakota, uh, Paradox of Lakota Nation, or Dennis Pope's work, Sitting Bull, Prisoner of War. So um, it's gonna be, I think it's going to be fun. I hope people enjoy it. Uh, just because of it's a remote location, and security concerns, we're using some we're using digital images of some pieces um, because remote locations, fire suppression, security concerns. But I hope people will enjoy it. Um, he's still one of the people who is automatically asked about, and as, as Ken can attest to, for the years he spent here in North Dakota, um, one of the people that is asked about, even if it's uh, at a place where he had no um, concern, uh, such as uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, we're, I think very good. Sorry, I think we're losing the line there, Mark. Sorry about that. Uh, Elizabeth and Rahini has texted in on five three one zero six to say, "Awesome show! Uh, what a wonderful man Sitting Bull was. Learning so much. Thank you. Well, thank you to my panelists who are really bringing the story of Sitting Bull uh, to life. We're going to take a quick break now, but when I come back, I'll be talking to Michael Moore, who's an instructor at Sitting Bull College in North Dakota, and whose wife is a descendant of Sitting Bull. And we'll be finding out their insights right after the break. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and legacy of Sitting Bull. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Michael Moore, who's an instructor on the Native American Studies program at Sitting Bull College in North Dakota. Michael, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Can I begin by asking how important an historical figure is Sitting Bull to the Lakota people and to the history of America in general? Uh, From a Lakota perspective, I would say he's incredibly important, you know, one of the most important uh, ancestors that's uh, remembered by the generations today for, you know, both the things that uh, he was involved with as well as, you know, himself, the way he, he led his life. For the United States, of course, he's also very important. And, and I think for the world even, you know, I think I've seen it said that he's, you know, one of the most well-known Native Americans in, you know, uh, all of world history. He and Geronimo, I suppose. And it's a story that inspires people. And why do you think that is? Is it to do with his moral courage and political vision? Or is it more to do with something spiritual to do with the way he lived his life? I think it's all of the above. Um, Certainly some of that will will be more emphasized depending on a particular perspective. So for outsiders, I think, you know, who read history books and things like that, it's probably more the moral courage and the political vision, the fact that, you know, he was a man of his convictions that, you know, attempted to bring together Lakota people and their allies to, you know, defend the Lakota homeland and to, you know, really defend the Lakota way of life. And then, you know, certainly that component is there as well for Lakota people, but I think for Lakota people it's also the very way that he led his life. So, you know, he was uh, selected by his people to be a leader, what they say is Itacha. And Itacha basically, you know, turns himself over to the people. I mean, everything that he does, he has to think of the people first, including, you know, laying down his life for them, uh, if need be. And so I think, you know, all of the different things that he's remembered for in the the oral histories, you know, are things like generosity and bravery and, you know, this idea of caring for other people and committing his life for the well-being of, of others. 
that's you know such an important aspect of uh, for Lakota people in in you know why he's important. And he's known affectionately as grandfather. Yeah, um, you know, in in Lakota society, traditionally people didn't refer to one another by names. So you know, no one would have addressed him by name, regardless of what their relationship was or not. Uh, you use kinship terms, and the kinship terms kind of structure the behavior and the attitudes that people have for one another, which is based on this, you know, sense of respect. And so for any anyone who is, you know, two generations above you, you refer to them as, as a grandparent, and in his case, as a grandfather. And so uh, the term that people use for grandfather is la-la. And, um, you know, that he would respond to anyone that called him Lala by using the term Chakoja, or grandchild. And that's a very, very special kind of relationship in Lakota. And it really emphasizes kind of the, the obligations uh, of respect and, and, you know, love that uh, grandparents and grandchildren have for one another. Talk to me about the, the warrior society and culture that he was also a part of. Uh, and the fact that this was, you know, his father had also been a warrior. What what exactly did that mean in terms of the community's identity and culture? So, you know, in the days when, you know, when he was alive back in the 1800s, um, as you mentioned, Lakota society was really uh, based around this organization of men into uh, military societies or warrior societies. Um, and the, the word they use for society is Okola Kichie. And so you had these various different groups that men would be invited to join based on their, you know, reputation um, within the tribe. And that, of course, was contingent on the kinds of deeds that that they did in battle. So at that time, of course, it was incredibly important to be able to, you know, to defend the people and to defend their, you know, their way of life and their homeland. And so there was an emphasis placed on, you know, the status of men that was tied to, you know, their demonstration of brave acts in battle, like touching an enemy with the, you know, in, in uh, French, I think, is where the word comes from, coup, counting coup. Um, Lakotas, it, it's wakte, is the word they use. And so, you know, depending on the number and the types of acts, which were, you know, kind of graded in, in order of bravery, kind of determined your social standing within the political and, and social organization of the people. And so when they would choose a leader, uh, you know, they would actually be comparing different candidates based on the kinds of deeds. And so there was kind of a really an, a public emphasis on men's, uh, you know, men's deeds and bravery that was really kind of brought out in terms of the, the songs that were sung in their honor and, you know, the, the honoring that they were given by people within the community. And that carries over, actually, to today. It's still an important part of Lakota identity. In this case now, it's service in the United States military. And so, for example, I was talking to my wife about that, and, and she said that it wasn't when she was growing up that they explicitly were, you know, that the parents or anybody were explicitly telling the kids to join the military or to talk about it kind of explicitly, but it was observing the kinds of things that the community did in terms of honoring veterans and honoring, you know, their, their members who had been killed in, in combat in American wars. And so, for example, here in, in Bullhead, where I live, or the Rock Creek community on the Standing Rock Reservation, there's an annual powwow or wachipi in Lakota that brings, you know, people together for dancing and, you know, celebrating and feasting and so on. And um, during the powwow, of course, it's always the, the role of uh, veterans is always emphasized. So each family has a flag from the American Legion, um, you know, for their, uh, their ancestor or for their veteran within their family. And those flags are all put up around the powwow ground. So if you come down the hill, we kind of live in a valley you'll see like 24 American flags flying every day during the course of the powwow. And each one of those, again, represents one of these individuals. 
and the the current veterans put the flags up and take them down and of course the family members will give them money or cigarettes or other kind of things to honor them and to honor the fact that they're in turn honoring their relative by you know handling that that relative's flag so even today there's this really important sense of defending the people and you know and service for the people that's that carries over into you know participation in the military today you have a, a very interesting personal connection to Sitting Bull through your wife because she's a descendant. Yes, yep. Does that connection change how you view Sitting Bull and uh, what does it mean for her to to have that relationship? Um, you know, she said that, uh, I, I was asking her about this specifically, she said, you know, growing up there was a, a, a sense of pride, obviously, in, you know, being related to you know, someone that everyone in the world seems to know, right, that has has this reputation for the kinds of, of deeds and the kinds of achievements and, again, standing up for his convictions and all of those kinds of things. There's a uh, was a sense of pride in, you know, being a member of that Tioshpai, that, that clan. And, um, and, of course, there's also a, um, there's this intimacy uh, in the sense that it's not just someone you know, in history that you read about and you know by name and you kind of admire, but because of the kinship connection, it's someone that, you know, that that people feel related to in a very intimate sort of way. And you know that as a grandparent, you know, that that person, you know, had your best interests in, in mind and that they did the things they did for your future, which, you know, was an important part of, of uh, Lakota culture is always, you know, the, the things that we decide today are going to impact our great-great-great-grandchildren. Or the, the way they say it is the seventh generation. And so there's this commitment on the part of, of leaders and respected people to always have future generations in mind. And so young people today, you know, would have would be aware of that, that, that these decisions and these actions that their ancestors did they did for the benefit of these you know of the present generations and of course we you know we teach our our kids to call him uh and and other elders by that term la la you know even though they obviously are separated by generations and finally how do you think sitting bull should be remembered what do you see as his legacy today uh again i think it's really someone who lived by their convictions, that they dedicated themselves um, to their people and to meeting the, you know, the, the daily needs of the people as well as the kind of long-term needs of the people in terms of defending them and, you know, making decisions that, you know, were for their benefit. And, you know, for the daily needs, it would be things like, you know, because Sitting Bull, for example, was a successful hunter, when he would bring in game, some of that game would always be given to elderly or to, you know, anyone that was in need. You know, so it was everything from the kind of daily stuff to the decisions that Sitting Bull made in terms of political and, uh, you know, social kinds of things that had longer-term kind of effects. And, you know, again, people outside of the society will really see the more uh, the, the more political um kinds of things and, you know, the idea of him being courageous and so on, whereas Lakota people will really identify with the more personal aspects of how he led his life and, you know, his, his spiritual spirituality. Well, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Uh, Michael Moore, who's an instructor at Sitting Bull College in North Dakota. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History, more on the life and legacy of Sitting Bull right after this break. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and legacy of Sitting Bull. We heard before the break from Michael Moore and we were also joined earlier in the show by Ken Woody and Mark Halverson. But staying with us uh, for the end of the show, delighted to be with Professor Gary Clayton Anderson of the University of Oklahoma and Bill Yenny, uh, author of Sitting Bull. Uh, Gary, can we talk about the death of Sitting Bull in 1890? Because you've mentioned earlier that it shouldn't have happened. What exactly went wrong? 
Well, first of all, um, the army overreacted, sent troops in, and uh, they feared a rebellion. And in reality, the, the so-called ghost dance movement was dominated by a very few number of Indians. In fact, the, the most important man who went out to uh, Nevada to, uh, to uh, see um, Wavoka, the leader of this, of this new kind of religious uh, cult, uh, his narrative has even never even been been published. It's, uh, it shows up in the National Archives in a collection there. And I've been going through the National Archives material for over 40 years now, particularly the Army records, uh, which are wonderful, by the way. Anyway, what happened was that the Army overreacted. Uh, the vast majority of what was said by Wavoka was dances, dance for four days, and then go into the field and plant and raise corn. And behave yourself. I mean, he was not interested in producing a rebellion of any sorts of a religious nature. And I don't think Sitting Bull was either. And um, Mary Collins, who was a missionary at Grand River, I've gone through her papers. She went out to see Sitting Bull while he's dancing. And um, he had lost like 30 or 40 pounds. So I don't doubt that he believed to some degree that uh, the buffalo would return, the white men would disappear, and all we had to do was do this dance and everything would be wonderful. Uh, I, I think he actually believed it might happen, but he was also a pragmatist. And I think uh, Mary, in talking to him, said, well, you know, we'll dance uh, through Christmas and then uh, if nothing happens, uh, we'll quit. And, and if they just let him alone, uh, it, it would have just subsided. It would have just gone away. Uh, I believe that to be true. Um, Buffalo Bill went to the army and, and when the army was getting ready to send troops in and do something and said, let me go talk to him. And the army said, fine. And he headed up, uh, the Missouri river to see sitting bull and try to, you know, talk him down from this, his, his village was kind of up in a uh, dancing this dance, uh, this uh, ghost dance every, every day and every night. Uh, and then the Indian agent at uh, Standing Rock, McLaughlin, uh, sends a message back to the, uh, to the Bureau of Indian Affairs and said, get Buffalo Bill out of here. I don't want him here. This is, this is an affair for my police. And he talked um, the Army into taking Buffalo, forcing Buffalo Bill to go back. And at that point, then McLaughlin finally decided to put an end to it and sent the Indian police in. And the Indian police knew there was going to be a shootout, and there was. And... Uh, Sitting Bull was actually a prisoner of the police, and he was shot in the back of the head by a by an Indian policeman. Right. Um, and Gary, we're almost out of time, but what do you see as his legacy and the lasting influence on on both Native American and, I suppose, American society and culture in general? Well, I think he he's something that enters into every history book. You know, I've written a, a Western history textbook and been put a bit of time on him. He's going to be there uh, as a legacy, uh, I think, forever, along with, uh, as uh, earlier, uh, your, your, the Mr. Moore, Professor Moore talked about uh, Geronimo, in fact. Uh, those are the two most important Western Indians that I can, can think of. There are others that you might want to bring up, but uh, they are certainly uh, going to be there for a long time. Um, the thing that I would like to point out, though, is at the same time that, that, that Sitting Bull and some of the other uh, Indians who followed him uh, were, in fact, uh, resisting the United States. There were large, large numbers of Indians who had settled down on the reservations and were being fed by the federal government uh, because the federal government didn't want conflict with them, and uh, feeding them was the best way of, of, of ending that conflict. Uh, and many Indian leaders became accommodationist or even semi-accommodationist, accommodating part of the time and encouraging, you know, trouble and resistance uh, part of the time. Uh, those Indians uh, don't get much press, and they should, and I, I'm working on that right now. And uh, I think um, that um, if you look at the 70 or 80,000 Indians on the Northern Plains, the vast majority had nothing to do with the Little Bighorn. Uh, and um, we need to look at how they adapt as well. And one of the ways they adapt, interesting enough, is by taking their young men aside and saying, now look, if you're going to go raid horses over here, please just raid them from another Indian tribe. Don't steal horses from white men because that will get you in trouble. And uh, Indian leaders. 
leaders then began to coax uh, young men into uh, uh, um, getting involved in horse racing, um, celebrating the 4th of July. There's no more Sundance. It's outlawed. Right. So we we can't dance in June. So why don't we move it to July the 4th and celebrate right. the, the birth right. of the nation and at the same time uh, right. have a wonderful dance. Wonderful. Well, now we're almost out of time and I'm going to leave the final word to Bill. Bill, in terms of the, the message for today, there's probably a story here that I think history can teach us by looking at someone like Sitting Bull. Hello? Yes, Bill. Hello. Yep. Hello. This oh. is uh, this is Bill, and you're uh, you're breaking up really badly on the line. So, sorry about that. I was just Hello? wondering if you had. A, I, I don't know if you can hear me, Bill. Okay, sorry. I think the line is. I'm. I'm. I, I'm. I apologize to Bill. There. Sorry. The line is breaking at the end. I might leave it with you then, Gary. In terms of the message for today, there is something I think we can take from the story of of Sitting Bull. Well. <laughs> I'm not sure that there's a there's something that we should look at today and say, well, he did it this way, and 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 we should uh, we should honor him for that. Um, I will say this: I don't think he anticipated a battle like the one that really did happen. Uh, I think he really believed in the end uh, that um, he could negotiate with the army and he could be allowed to stay where he was. His people allowed to stay where they were, uh, and of course. Uh, uh, if it, there was going to be a battle, um, he, there were so many Indians there then he was convinced that they would actually win. Um, so I, I don't think that he was uh, quite as, as, as uh, you know, convinced of, of, you know, this is a fight to the death, that sort of thing. In fact, I'll tell you this much, uh, one quickly. Um, one of his chief soldiers was a man named Yellow Robe. And Yellow Robe took a message from Sitting Bull to Fort Laramie to see General Crook. Uh, in March, uh, well before the battle. And that message was this. We don't want war. We want peace. Very good. Okay, I think we better leave it there. Sorry, time has beaten us, but a wonderful conversation with my guests and a brilliant panel as usual. Next week, has slavery built modern America? Journeys to freedom after the Holocaust and lots more. My thanks to Susan Cowell and Peter Malloy. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk. Good night. Talking History on News Talk. (laughs) 